everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Back Peg. Nathan here alongside Laz. And Laz, you've sorted us out a fantastic guest this week. Sure have, Nathan. Sure have. Jason Stevens, who is a football business analyst and head coach of Hashtag United Women's Team, which I had no idea about. Jason, welcome. Hi, guys. How are you? Thank you for joining us uh, this week. Uh, Jason, we've got you on. We'll touch on something else that you do, which is that you're the head coach of the uh, women's football team, Hashtag United, which uh, we'll touch on that uh, a little bit later. But the primary reason why we've got you on is um, we've, throughout our year on the back peg, Nathan and I have uh, been talking about multi-club ownership. And this is one of Nathan's favourite topic, if not his most favourite topic. So we thought we'd get you on considering that uh, you, you're a football business analyst and I've seen your posts on LinkedIn, which have been most informative. So tell us how you got into the industry of football business analysis and how this, um, you know, how you decided to delve into this multi-club ownership saga, if we can yeah, put it yeah. that way. <clears throat> well, yeah. I mean, yourself is a saga and it's growing, growing, growing. We've only seen, we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg at the moment. Um, but going back to my my history as such, um, I've predominantly been a coach, um, coached across five different continents, Sao Paulo and Brazil, um, into Milan, um, in Europe, plus some of the home clubs in England. Um, and then I set up my own business, um, the style of stroke, a soccer, street soccer, and managed to touch on places like Qatar, Middle East, etc. Um, and then for my sins, I was um, I went out to the Cook Islands, in your neck of the woods, and mm-hmm. um, I was um, head ladies coach um, around about 2018 and um, acting technical director um, for a period of time. Um, things didn't work out too well there. There was um, a few skullduggery going on, another word for mm-hmm. corruption. Mm-hmm. And then it was a choice I needed to get back to the UK and <laughs> to be involved in it. And the first job I sort of come across in the UK was um, a lecture, a football lecture at UCFB, which is a football um, business university. And yeah, I was, I was sort of believed that I was going back there to be like head of coaching or something like that. But I was thrown into the business side. And as I, I've grown into that, I've been there now five years, um, I've really come to, to grips with it. And now I'm program leader for football business and this has been a trend that's been going on you know before i started in 2018 but there was only small pockets of it and then what we've seen in the last few years is this really accelerate but what's what's really really interesting is what's happening in the shadows and what i call shadows is the minority investors mm-hmm. um yeah and there's a few things that we could discuss to, to you know bring that up etc yeah which I'm sure we'll get into. And I just wanted to speak broadly at the top of this interview, talking about your role as a lecturer at the university. And I'm sure this topic of multi-club ownership and um, investment from capital firms into football clubs draws out a lot of uh, passion from some of your students, I'm sure. Uh, What's it like to uh, be in this space, both as an analyst, but also as a teacher? And tell us about, uh, albeit from uh, a wide look a wide look at it what it is like to have so many passionate people come through the system and i'm sure you have many good discussions about multi-club ownership just with your students yeah we do we do um i mean we get a, we get a couple of thousand that come through every year um etc so you get a, a broad spectrum but i'd say 80 percent of them are really passionate um about just football in general um but unfortunately when it comes to their clubs it's they don't care where the money comes from as long as it's going into their team and we've got a real generation like this, it's um, we're, we're quite okay to have morals about other clubs. Um, but when it comes to your own club, 
<laughs> oh, no, 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 this is great for us. We're going to be the next £100 million player, et cetera, et cetera. But on the flip side, there is a percentage that really do dig into it. And, you know, they raise interesting questions. But there's there's the role of, you know, when you've got groups like CFG um, going around the world, mopping up clubs, um, their, their strategic approach. I, I can see that the way that they're doing it first, they're not just going in there and buying hundreds of millions of pounds of players for every club, right? They're not doing that. Um, they've got a strong emphasis on developing the community aspect and developing their image in those areas. And they really are investing in those areas as well. So they've got some big community programs and, you know, they've got to be applauded for that. Um, but then you've got groups like 7-7 Seven Seven Partners, right? They're just wrong. I mean, there's no other ways to put it. You know, can sue me if they want, but um, they are just wrong for football <laughs> because <laughs> what they're doing is they're buying stressed assets um, and then they're using borrowed money again to try and leverage that takeover of investment. And they're missing multiple deadlines, which is putting pressures on the club's very existence. And they're just not good for the game at all. Um, but then you've got these other ones now. I mean, let's say the majority of multi-club ownership is about partnering up with clubs. And when you partner up with clubs, if you don't have that contract, then you've just got this um, bond of word that players and pathways, etc., coaching development um, is going to happen. Um, but to have a feeder club for these young players to actually progress in, um, there could be some benefits there. Right? There could be some benefits there. And it's just which clubs are doing it well, which clubs are taking advantage of it. But you're going to find this in whatever you know governance system you have. There's clubs that do it well, and there's clubs that don't do it. Well. So, and I think MCO at the moment we've got we've got some good groups, and we've got some groups that are not doing us any favors at all. You know, on that side of things. So, and back to the students in terms of their emotional buying. Unfortunately, we got a generation of show me the money, and uh, mm. I will I will be an adopted Saudi Arabian if you need me to be. If he's bringing in or turning <laughs> my club to the top of the tree and giving me this period of time where I can win trophies, um, and it's sad, right? It is sad, but. When I'm sitting there, I'm 50 years of age now, so I've come through that generation of clubs belong to the community, right? You know, anyone who owns our clubs, they're, they're guardians. They're not, they shouldn't be allowed to be owners, you know. But at the same time, if they're putting in millions of pounds to make your club great again, and they're not financially stressing it, then that's also good, right? Mm. <laughs> it can be. It can be. <laughs> got to, and and that's the thing. And, and people are seeing that positive. They're not looking at the negatives. They're just offsetting the positives with the negatives. But those positives, I'm afraid, are aligned with on-pitch on pitch performance. They're not aligned with all the morals and ownership issues off the, off the pitch type thing. So, yeah, we've got yeah. some challenges, that's for sure. Yeah, we do, because, Jason, I'm guilty as charged being a Newcastle United supporter. <laughs> so, <laughs> mate, you must be loving it. You must be loving it at the moment. What a win uh, last night! Right? I know. What a win last night! Yeah. yeah. Moving on. Moving on. Moving on. <laughs> yeah. Guess who's guess who's a Man U supporter? <laughs> oh, oh, seriously. Yeah. Well, I'm a Liverpool supporter. Should we? Should we end this? <laughs> oh yes. Yeah. Why do you want this going on, lads? Come on. <laughs> uh, this is payback for all the Man U supporters that you've gotten on. Now, uh, um, yeah, you're not <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I completely take your point with regards to to the Saudis as well, right? Because as you mentioned earlier, anybody, and it was a case of, you know, personally, right? I mean, I'm 48 years old and, and I'm conflict, I was conflicted, but purely from a football fan perspective, I was looking at it um, as anybody but Mike Ashley, right? Because that club has just been suffering long enough, right? Now the Saudis are not, you know, obviously there's issues, human rights issues with regards to the regime and 
you know, obviously we'll touch on later on as well, Nathan, with regards to the Saudis being awarded the, the World Cup, right, in 2034 and the challenges that that's going to present. But with regards to, you mentioned Triple Seven, which I find fascinating because they've got an involvement here in, in the local game, being a part owner of the Melbourne Victory, um, uh, which I'm sure you're aware of. And yeah. it's it's interesting that we've actually got the City Football Group across town from them as well. What a in, derby. In, in Melbourne City, right? Triple Seven versus CFG. Yeah, playing in the A-League. So, so, you know, you've got those two extremes, which and I'm glad you noted that because I look at the City Football Group, irrespective of what your position is with regards to multi-club ownership, I think they actually, for a model of multi-club ownership, I think they do a mighty good job. Yeah. I don't know what your thoughts on it and what Nathan thinks about it. I know that he's primarily against it, but what are your thoughts on on the City Football Group and how their approach to their organisation and the teams that they own and the clubs that they're fostering as a business model in particular with regards to modern-day football? Yeah, no, and this is what I was saying earlier. You know, we've got some good groups, which mm. is, you know, re-identify CFG as being one of them. Mm. I mean, what they've got now, they've got 14 clubs in their portfolio, 12 that wow. they've got ownership stakes in and two that they've got partnerships with. Sure. Um, but the, the, the way that they, they, they do it is, you know, a way that I, I believe that, look, let's just say which is the right way, which is the wrong way. But yep. let's just analyse some of the good things that they mm. do. You know, let's just go through one club at a time, right? So let's look at the Japanese club, Yokohama, okay. for example. So that, that part of there's one part of this, that ownership stake. So they've got a 20, a 20% ownership stake in it. There's one part of that where Nissan, who are the majority owners of that, they were doing like um, what just before COVID. They was in financial trouble, and um, CFG, well, the Abu Dhabi Group, the owners of CFG, they um, they have they bailed Nissan out, and they they gave them much needed finance in order for them to continue as a, a manufacturer as a as a product. Um, and then in return for that, they um, surrendered twenty percent of their ownership in order to allow City to enter the, the Japanese market. Um, but in that time, um, if you look at um, what they've been doing in terms of the community, in terms of youth football, and how that's helped the, de- the development of those players in that um, league, other clubs have now picked up that model. So they, they realise that they have to raise their game, right? So what City are showing with all of their teams and the leagues is actually um, you've got to keep up with the Joneses. There's a saying over here, if you don't keep up with the Joneses, you're going to fall behind, right? So a lot of the clubs are, are replicating what they do. Um, fast forward that. It's only fast forward it five, six years, but now we're seeing the Japanese football market become a hotbed for talent production. And now, you know, good value for money, good quality of player, etc. And You know, I'm not saying that City Football Group are the sole reason for that but they've definitely ignited it right they've de- definitely ignited it however if we switch back to australia um we had this phase uh, i'd say probably the early years of the premier league where we had some good australian players coming through and dipping their toes in in premier league etc um but i, I think because theirs is more to do with franchise leagues, etc., and there's no fear of relegation, no fear of um, you know, well, promotion, whatever it is, winning the league, etc. It doesn't seem to be that much urgency on developing high-end players. And yes, you know, Australia are a functional machine, and yes, you know, they have produced competitive sides at the World Cup, but they've stopped producing these players that you know will want sought after, you know. Um, the Harry Kills, the Mark the Dukas, you know, mm. where are they? Where are these yeah. guys gone? Um, and then Aaron Moy was probably a more recent one, um, mm. etc. Showed so much promise, but then didn't fulfil it. 
um, as such. Um, so, you know, whether that's a victim of franchise leagues itself or whether that's um, a victim of um, other clubs, Australia's, you know, I'd say sparse population. But it has had positive effects on um you know, Japan. And then if we look at what they're doing with Mumbai City, um, it's a different type of partnership right there because they've collaborated with a bit of a celebrity. And But what we have seen in, in India, for example, is that they've identified future trends. So look, there's all sorts of research papers out there, etc. Um, and one of the, the papers I believe that City picked up on, because I think a lot of the industry has, is that India's population, 65% of them are under 35 which is more alarming for India cricket fans, out of that um, 65%, football's their number one sport, not cricket. Mm. So, you know, when you put that together, you can see why collectively the Premier League have been in India for the last like five, seven years. Um, City Football Group have also think, right, okay, let's take advantage of this. And their popularity and dominance is now showing. And I think they won the league last time out, etc. And then we can go into some of their clubs um, in... Um, Uruguay, for example, Montevideo. Um, you know, they've gone in there and they have transformed it. They have had a little bit of a transition from their traditional club crest and, and colours and they have implemented the brand, which is, you know, can be a sticking point. Um, but the investment they've put into that club, you know, bringing it, developing its academy around there. You know, my the last time I was, I was discussing this with one of the City Football Group members, they were saying that they've got 20,000 youths playing football now within their community programmes and, you know, and their academies, which traditionally for a club in Uruguay, you're probably only getting about 600, 400, 600. Um, there are some outliers in that. But, um, so you can see that the brand has brought that community engagement um, and, you know, Better word, they're just putting football out to these these countries, which probably need that help with regards to resource um, investment, etc. Around there, but you know, again, without going through every single one club, they did have a knockback last year, right, with NAC Brada. So they mm. did agree a leverage buyout with them, um, and then the fans rebelled, and you know they they wasn't stubborn enough to say no, we're going to try and win you over. They just went right, okay, we're not wanted here, we'll take a step back. So you know, they 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 don't choose. When I say, and I don't mean this to be disrespectful to the clubs there, but they're not choosing global brands already. They are making these clubs more significant with their investment and their presence. Um, and which is, in essence, is doing wonders, right? Because one of the benefits of multi-club ownership is collective um, selling of sponsorship rights. So, you know, a supplier on his own might not want Montievo, might not want um, the, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of the other clubs on the top of my head, but they've got um, six or seven clubs in this, yeah. um, Lamal, for example, mm. um, and Troyes. Um, they may not want those clubs individually, but as mm. a collective bargaining tool, um, they may want to. And they have got some sponsors which they collectively put throughout their group. So just to... Look, they, they CFG separate their clubs. So they've got what they call core business, and they've got three clubs in their core business with City, New York, and Melbourne. And then all the other clubs fall in their supporting business, right? And then there's another division called partnership. Um, so they sell collective bargaining rights for their um, core business, and then mm -hmm. they sell them for their supporting business. And then there's only a couple of, like, off-pitch mm. sponsorships that represent throughout. But are City doing it the right way? Yeah, because they don't just go in there and have a product. They don't just go in there and buy. They actually spend time developing the communities, giving back to the communities in ways that football doesn't. Um, and, and and they've got to be applauded for that. And But the problem is they don't put that material out there because they don't want to rub it into people's faces and go, yeah, look at us and we're building houses. We're building 
you know, re regenerating communities. They just hope that that goodwill is picked up by the press and the media. But unfortunately, they don't always pick it up because they just judge them purely on football and football dominance in the case of the Premier League, you know, in that sense. So, but yeah, sorry, I don't know if I veered off there. No, no, solely on that's fine. No, it's fine. No, it didn't veer off at all. It's great. Um, and just to sort of continue this CFG discussion, talking specifically about Melbourne City, yes, the Premier League offers a lot of advantages when being associated with these clubs around the world, Melbourne City, be it Yokohama, be it Mumbai, be it whoever else is in the portfolio. But it also presents its own challenges. With a lot of these clubs, they've either rebranded them, changed the colours entirely, which you say is a you say is a sticking point, which it often is a, a big bridged across for uh, existing supporters. And we've seen evidence of uh, other owners trying to change clubs, colours and crests, and they've had to go back on it. I think of Cardiff City as a good example of that. And But also being associated so strongly with a Premier League team, it has its drawbacks in the sense that, for mine at least, I don't necessarily think Melbourne City will ever get to the point of being the biggest club in Australia in terms of supporters, because in this part of the world particularly, for most football supporters growing up, you have a Premier League team before you have an A-League team. And the three most supported clubs in Australia are Arsenal, Liverpool and Manchester United. And for I think for a lot of football fans, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to support one of those three Premier League teams and then support also a Melbourne City associated football club down here in Melbourne. This is something I think that is always going to hold the club back in terms of its standing in Australia. Yes, they can do great things on the pitch. They can win lots of silverware. But in terms of generating a big club environment with big attendances and a big reputation outside of what they can do off the pitch, I think that's a big stumbling block for a lot of these clubs. Yeah, I mean, let's flip that though, right? Um, and what I mean is we've all, but when we were growing up, obviously we're diehard our club. So for example, I'm a diehard Liverpool fan. There would never be a number, a second club in my league, in my country. Right, there'd be just maybe I have a little affinity to where I grew up. I grew up near Gillingham, so you know I, I've always kept an eye on their results, but I wasn't a hardcore fan. However, I was always supportive of teams in other leagues. Right, so maybe we grew up being a fan of Barcelona, Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, Girona, if you want to put it that way. Um, you know, and and we adopted teams in across the major leagues. Right, I'm not saying you go out there and you're hardcore supporters, but let's determine what supporters are. Right, because these clubs they don't care whether you a hardcore fan and you buy season tickets or whether you're that guy that buys the home way or third strip. But will you one day buy something that's connected to their club in which they will benefit from that revenue? And the answer is, yeah, they tap into every football fan. Right? They don't just tap into fans of their clubs. So in the case of your A-League, for example, um, well, there's two sides of it, right? You've got the A-League. We've got this um, new Club World Cup starting um, mm -hmm. next year, 2025. Yep. Yep. That is going to be, outside of the World Cup, the richest competition on the planet, right? With the money that's being pumped into that without sponsorship at the moment. I mean, it already stands to be for that competition alone. There's a there's a pool of 1.1 billion pounds already earmarked for that. Um, and that's without, you know, having central sponsors yet. So that's going to only increase. And that just means that by even qualifying for that competition, you're going to get your hands on to 30 odd million. And this is why I think, you know, football clubs, um, you know, someone should jump on Auckland, for example. Um, mm -hmm. And there is, there is a group that's been named as a preferred business because they're always going to get from the OFC region entry to that competition. Going back to the A-League, it's not about having global dominance. Um, it's about having fans that probably will tap into um 
your club, you know, whether that's through online streaming, online video hits and following you on social media or whether that is buying a product. I mean, again, just going back to, I use my students as surveys, right, for research football fans and um, how many of them have got a shirt from Australian football, from American teams in America. They've all got it. They've all got shirts from either other European clubs, clubs in like Asia, clubs in um, Australia, on America. Because there's also a side of it that they, they want to be seen to be supporting football, right? And football is by buying a shirt, et cetera, as well. So they have an appreciation and understanding that if I just buy a shirt here, I'm not saying I'm a supporter, but you know, I want to yeah. see that club do well. So it depends how what metrics we use to to measure. Are you going to compete financially? No. Are you going to compete on a global scale of popularity? No. No league is going to compete with the Premier League. But it doesn't mean to say that other leagues can't function and still tap into those football fans because the Premier League fans, they are fans of football across the world, not just football of their clubs. You know, And I'm sure that's replicated throughout. So you mentioned... Triple seven, yeah, uh, and obviously their bid that's being considered at the moment, from what we know, uh, by the Premier League with regards to Everton. Uh, what are the concerns for those that don't know with regards to Triple Seven Group? Because, um, like I said, but they're involved with Australian with Melbourne Victory here in Australia. Um, what are the issues that you've seen that are of concern that potentially might knock this? Um, this bit on the head from Triple Seven Group, and are there concerns around the way that they've managed other clubs into relegation at the moment? Is that I've, a fact? Done, yeah, I mean, I've done an article on Seven Seven Partners, etc. Just because it was a topic of interest. I mean, mm. as much as I'm a Liverpool fan, I don't want to see Everton disappear. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's a great city rivalry. Correct. Um, we're a family institution up there, and yes. You know, we have big divides when it comes to match day, but, you know, half the family support Everton, half the other half support Liverpool. So we, we, we have a common interest in that we want to make sure that the custodians of Everton are good. We don't want them to be the next um, state-owned club and outbid and outdo Liverpool, but at the same time, we don't want them to be that club that disappears into the distance. They, they are historic. So, you know, looking at 7-7 Partners, I mean, there is a great, uh, I mean, if you, I don't know if you come across a website called Jossimor. Um, Jossimor is an investigatory um, website for football. And these guys have just got their, their claws out on 7-7 Partners. They've got about five or six K um, studies, um, investigations going on around some of their other businesses and how they, um, well, unfortunately, how they operate. Now, mm-hmm. look, I mean, one of the other, I can give you some of their assets. So they've only got involved in football in the last few years. So mm-hmm. I think it was like 2016 was their first purchase, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as a company, you know, they was only founded in 2015. So they've only got like eight years behind them. Um, you know, and I'm not saying you know we should judge Josh on this, but mm. he has had a number of convictions behind him. Um, but we all make mistakes when we're young. I get that. But if you've got repeat offense offenses going behind you, then it's something to do with your mentality and the fact that you're prepared to do bad. You know, um, I'm not bothered about him taking a bit of marijuana as a kid. You know, but I'm thinking if he's got these misdemeanors about the way that he's operated on, on various companies and we got we have a duty of care as uh, as the governing bodies to think well okay your history is not clean here why should we give you one of our historic clubs now one of the uh the, the alleges i must make this clear because this case mm. is still going through so the mm. allegations um are not proven yet but this case really shocked me and there was this poor lady that was involved in a, a car accident and this is one of his companies and what they do is they buy medical um claims so you know this lady was caught in a major car accident and she was awarded the sum of a hundred million pounds for the 
the disabilities that she was given. Um, but with all these leverage um, awards, um, they're not paid 100 million up front, mm. right? They mm. agree on a settlement plan yeah. over a number of years. Um, and then what happened was that um, they were knocking on her door saying, look, look, we'll give you 10 million now and we'll take that 100 million off you. And so she was potentially losing out on 90 million. Um, and she was like, no, no, I don't want to lose out on 90 million. Um, if you want to give me money, I'm, I, you know, I'll, I'll look at something around the, uh, 75%, but not 10%. So the ele- allegations are, and again, this is in court as we speak, that the group that was behind this, which is one of the 7-7 partners companies, they kidnapped her. They then drugged her and got her fixed on cocaine um, to such a point that they forced her under the influence to sign this agreement over. Now, again, she signed it over for less than that 10 million. That was the original thing. And now they've got the, the rest of that claim. Now, and this is a story from her mum and dad, right? So mm. we're not saying it's 100% truthful, but to make something like that up, you've got to be either sick in the head or, or you know, there is some serious truth to it. Um, so that got me reading more and more into that. Mm. And then, you know, the way that they buy stressed assets. So they've got a couple of um, low-cost airlines, for example, and then buy one hand that they're saying to them, look, look, we'll help bail you out and keep you operating, but then you've got to pay us the money back. But the money that they're asking them to pay back is like ridiculous, ridiculous interest rate. So it's just like a stay of execution. So these low-cost airlines are going, well, okay, you might have saved us this week, but in three years down the line, we're going to be out of our business anyway. So what's the point of taking us over? And, and they've got this history of doing this with other non-football related businesses. And, and honestly, if you read into it, and Jocelyn Moore's got some great examples on that, um, you'll be amazed that why aren't the Premier League reading this and thinking, well, this alone, whether it's proven right or not, why are they associated with so many different cases? But let's bring it back to football, right? Bring it back to football. Genoa last year, they own in Italy. So they've got 99% stake in Genoa. And um, they've missed multiple deadlines with regards to just paying tax returns. So again, it just tarnishes the club's reputation, right? And it puts them under... Um, look, when it comes to financial management, etc., if you keep missing payments, if we do that, right? In the end of the day, administrators come around, creditors come around, and, and we get done. Um, and and this is what they're doing with general. Her for Berlin. Um, it's, it's a strange one with her for Berlin because mm. um, they, I mean, they got a 64.7% stake in them. But my understanding is it's to do with their commercial activities more than it is to do with the governance of the club. So they don't really have a voice on the, the voting in the way that the club goes. But in terms of commercial activities, they control the potential revenues, right? So hold on a minute. You're letting somebody control the backbone of any football club, the revenues of it. So how is that working out? Well, it's not working out too well. Right. So, in fact, you know, the, my understanding is that clubs under financial stress in itself because promises that they've made to invest have not materialised. The biggest one is one of Belgium's most historic clubs, Standard Liège. Now, it's no exaggeration to say that that club is on the verge of being kicked out of football because of continuous missed deadlines of payments. And to the fact where even last year, 2022, November, they was in... Um, well, they was issued with a final warning from the Belgian Football Association to say, look, if you don't meet this deadline, you're gone. And yeah, OK, you can say it's tongue in cheek because Belgian football needs standard age. And and at the moment, it's proven to be. And I think, you know, 7-7 partners were playing this game. And are you really going to kick us out? Because we are the biggest brand in your league. But anyway, it went all the way through to August this year and they still hadn't settled the arrangements. And I think it's now got to be a case of if they don't settle these debts, well, and then are they going to be just evicted from the league? And um, 
But we'll, we'll see. But it, that's probably, I'd say, at the highest you know, red alert that there is in football at the moment with one of their clubs. And then you've got Red Star in France, where they own 100% off. Well, the fans just absolutely hate them. I mean, they have to the point where they've threatened them. They've got the ultra groups behind there who are quite happy to track these people down and get them rid of their club. Um, if you look at what's going on with Marseille and the way that they threatened their managers, etc., and, you know, recent... <laughs> with attacking um, their rivals, right? That's just football in that sense. But these ultras, they just want them out of the club. They just said, you know, American capitalism has got nothing to do with the historic nature of their club, you know, and I agree with them. I mean, you talk to your club, etc. Right? They've only got a 20% stake in there at the moment, but that's increasing to 70% by 2028. Well, that's the plan phasing, right? So if they become the majority owners then, then who's to say, um, you know, if they're not going to follow suit? And the, the last one that they've got shares in is De Gamma over in Brazil, right? Vasco De Gamma. And they've got 70% in it. Well, they've been banned from signing players because they haven't paid their debt. Um, they've, um, they've taken out loans without the board agreeing to it. Um, and... No investment into the club, which is leaving the club the, the brink of really well. So they've had relegation, etc. And there's just no investment into the, the club whatsoever. And and that club itself is in severe um, turmoil. Um, and you know the last club that they've got is Sevilla, and Sevilla they've only got a minority stake in that one. But again, promises that were linked to that investment they've just not followed up. So they've really got a history of just not honouring their commitment. And again, the Premier League are even considering this, right? Just look at their clubs. Not one of them is in a happy place, you know. Um, and why would you even consider adding Everton to that portfolio? The biggest league in the world where the media attention is going to be on it. And trust me, the scrutiny that 7-7 seven, seven partners are on now is going to be nothing compared to once they take over. And is that going to damage their other business? So, you know, I would say to them, if you don't, if you don't understand the British media, <laughs> um, just take over. Because... You're, you're about to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're, they're going to destroy it. They're going to, they're already gunning for them. Trust me, they're already gunning. For them. Um, so they're not. It's not a great. It's not a great group. It's not a great group. And I mean, there are other groups as well that, you know, in that sense, that haven't um, been too well. Um, and yeah, I mean, look, I don't want to bore you with going into no. every little group, but these are the major ones, right? These are yeah. the major ones. Other big players. Hmm. But you know, like you said, I mean, let's let's flip that to your club, Newcastle, um, because as much as Saudi Arabia has a lot of um, off-field issues with human rights, integrity, etc. I mean, all I'd say is I've learned over the years. I mean, I, I spent some time in the Middle East, in Qatar, um, et cetera. And I see that, yes, they've had a history of not doing the right thing you know, in, in Westerners' eyes, um, in modern civilization. But what they have got is a desire to change. Mm. Right? And, you know, and we should recognize that. And, mm -hmm. and, and that don't, don't just hold them time and time again to, you know, to some of their past traits. You know, but if they've got look, the other side of the coin is right. They've got a culture and some beliefs that they want to stick to die hard. Then that's up to them, right? That's up to them. Um, I'm not saying it's right, but I don't. I'd argue that is every country morally correct in what we do. Um, I know that the UK and Americans ain't, um, <laughs> and I'm sure that outside of that, you know, why are we quick to judge every other country when we're not exactly the white knights ourselves? So we're a bit hypocritical, you know, but. It's like that football fan, you know, we can have that opinion on somebody else, but when it's our club, <laughs> I'm wearing that fancy dress, I'm going down there, I'm an adopted Saudi today, you know. But the one thing I do like about the Saudi takeover, right, it wasn't just purely a football decision. Mm. Right? It was an investment decision from the British government, mm. okay. So you know, they never admit to this, but there was definitely, look, 
the economy, COVID, etc., has affected every country, okay, in terms of its financial power. And the, the Northeast, the Northwest, we're all needed regeneration, right? And there's not no coincidence that we've got state-backed funds in Northwest and Northeast. I mean, a couple of years ago, right, when China were becoming the powerhouses, our Midlands area was overtaken by Chinese investors. Yeah. All our Midland teams were Chinese-owned. And then uh, if we look back at the economy and all the major developments, they were all backed by Chinese companies, right? So we've got that side. So now we've got up in Manchester, um, we've got the Abu Dhabi group, regenerating parts of Manchester. And then mm. it's going to be the same with Saudis. They're yeah. not just there to develop a football club. They're going to be developing the area. And and two of their perfect perspective partners, the Rubin brothers, they're local mm. um lads and they've been investing in Newcastle for you know many years now. So I'm not saying that they're clean as mustard, but they've got good intentions. And you know, Saudis partner up with them. There's lots of development going around Newcastle yeah. now, which is, you know, underpinned by the Saudi um the PIF fund. So let's support them for that as well. So Nathan, are you convinced with multi-club ownership as yet? <laughs> Not that I'm trying to Look. convince you or Jason's trying to convince you, but it's <laughs> the interesting viewpoints that Jason uh, has, you know, come up with with all the research that uh, that he's done as well. Yeah, of course. And just like whether it be multi-club ownership or single club ownership, that you have good owners and bad owners. And yes, of course, City is uh, much of my Premier League allegiances. They do on the whole, do a good job of when it comes to their multi-club model. I basically, essentially, my concerns over multi-club ownership come from the view of supporters in the sense that you might have generations of supporters that come through and support a team that perhaps doesn't win trophies, that perhaps they're a mid-table side, maybe they've been relegated a few times, and then all of a sudden comes along, be it Manchester City, be it whoever, and then you're then permanently associated with that team and their owners and everything that goes with that. That's essentially where my concerns over multiple ownerships begin and end. Yeah, and... but as a, as a Man United fan, you might be hypocritical, right? Because if any of them take over, <laughs> then you're, you've automatically joined that group in a minority yep. capacity. Correct. And then uh, suddenly, I mean... if you can tap into some of those players at Nice, you'll be laughing your head off, right? Because they're going to be a lot better I mean... than what you've got at the moment. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing. Whether I mean Manchester United, as a uh, from my point of view, we were stuck between a rock and a hard place, be it a Qatari takeover or a uh, Ineos takeover, and joining the multi-club ownership model. I mean, just speaking about broad football, I'd like to ask you, Jason, like which direction do you see it going? Do you see this multi-club ownership thing being a net positive for football moving forward in three decades' time? Are we going to see every football club under some form of a multi-club ownership model? I mean, the way it's going at the moment, you would that last point, 100%, everyone's going to be associated. So let's just have a look, right? What is classed as a multi-club ownership? Because this is the grey area. So, mm. for example, let's just take our two clubs. You would say that Manchester United are not a multi-club ownership, right? Um, not right now, if, no. No, no, no. Well, they are. Right? And I'll tell you why they are, because you've got a minority investor called Linzel Train, right? And Linzel Train are your second biggest shareholder as we stand. But they're also the second biggest shareholder in Celtic and the second biggest shareholder in Juventus. Now, the difference is theirs is more aligned to just a financial investment. They're mm. not asking for an influence and they're not operating in the shadows, right? So theirs is just financial. But on a technical term, mm. you know, that stake they've got in Manchester United was 220 million. And that is, you know, more than what um, Will Foley bought Bournemouth so it's a significant investment right and then and in Liverpool right my club so we mm. were owned by FSG but FSG is um is owned 11% by Redbird Capital now Redbird Capital they own 90% of AC Milan they've also got a, a stake in New York um City 
Um, they've also got a partnership with New York City, with New York Yankees, right? And then New York Yankees have got a partnership with um, City Football Group because they've got the other club in New York. Redbird also owned Toulouse, who Liverpool played in the um, UEFA Cup last week. And then they've also got um, an investment with a, a minor, minor share in Malaga in, in, in Spain. Um, this new other group we've got, right, Dynasty Equity, that just mm-hmm. formed like last year. They've now, you know, they've got this fund together for football and um, Liverpool is their first investment. So they've actually invested right. in Liverpool the brand. Um, but then you've got LeBron James. Mm-hmm. Okay, LeBron James has got a 1% ownership stake in FSG. But he's also got a bigger stake in AC Milan. Mm. And you're thinking, okay, all right, this is a different type of ownership in collaboration. And maybe that's just um, to do that. But where do we draw the line on multi-club ownership? Are we just saying it's to do with um, the majority ownership of a club? And if we do, then we're making a massive mistake. Because these venture funds that are backing these minority investors are 10 times more powerful financially than the owners of clubs. And it's a case of who makes the decisions. Is it the person that sits with the 51% interest or is it the person with the financial muscle? And again, a little case example, you've got um, QSI Group um, who own Paris Saint-Germain. Mm-hmm. They invested in Braga in Portugal last year, right? Now, look what's happening to Braga. You can have a look at all their financial investments and development. They're not doing that from the back of their seven million that they earned last year. I mean, this is major investment from QSI to get them to challenge or disrupt the power at the top. Um, Mm. So it's where do we take this? Right? Where do we take this? Who has the influence? And this is one of the rules that UEFA have got to try and sort out. How do they measure and quantify influence? Because it's going to be different with with all of them. Or or effective control to that point, because effective control is the is has to do with the direction of the club and the decisions that are being made for the club. Yeah. So so you could be a shadow, or for want of a better term, you could be a shadow director with effective control. Yeah, exactly. And you don't need any ownership papers for that, right? It's just a case of mm. I'm putting my money in. You know I am. Mm. Don't. I'll take it out and then see where your club operates in. Mm. So look, football, what I am going to say is I'm going back to yours. Will clubs be owned by the same investor? Well, we've already got it, right? Um, we've already got it. And, and and a little a little example with the PIF fund, right? They've got investment um, but it's about when no one knows the exact percentage, but they've got 5% control of Clear Lake Capital City, right? Mm-hmm. And Clear Lake Capital own Chelsea. Mm-hmm. They've got 5% stake in Silver Lake. Silver mm-hmm. Lake, are, you know, around about 20% ownership of um, Manchester, the City, the City Football Group. Right? And, and investors into the A League now. Well, yeah, exactly. They've got, and mm-hmm. this is, the, you know, what I was going to say, oh, yeah, when we were talking about the A League, et cetera, this is mm-hmm. one of the talking points, right? Because they've got a, a an ownership part, 20% in Melbourne, and yet they've got a 33% stake in the league, okay? So, mm. I mean, is that not a conflict of interest in itself? How is that going <laughs> to happen? Right? Um, so, it's like, well, and this is where it's going. Um, all the major venture funds that are launching to take over football clubs, you've got Arctos Partners, oh, by the way, which also own 5% of FSG, and also the principal backers of um, Eagle Holdings, which is... You know, the most complicated and biggest network of football clubs, right? Um, yes, yes. And it's it's where do we draw this line? But I'd say that these venture funds have found the loophole. They've found the loophole um, in the sense of there's no governance here that suggests that I can't have a 5% mm. stake in a million clubs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are some clubs, you know, Scotland, for example, that has a rule if you've got more than 25% ownership of another European club, then you can't own a Scottish club. But 
we think that's now because of the pressure of multi-club ownership that's just about to be challenged because Black Knight Football Group yesterday announced that they've got a um, a table on the bid for fifteen percent control in Hibernian, wow. um, etc. So that that could be sanctioned. I mean, Hibernian mm. lost their owner back in February, and uh, the family they, they want to sell the club, etc. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So where do we draw the line with these minority investments, etc.? You know, and as I said, we're all connected somehow. We're all connected. So some do it better than others. <laughs> yeah, it, it's an amazing ecosystem. This uh, the the world of uh, football business. That's that's for sure. And uh, it's definitely watch the space for it because it's evolving. Like you said, I mean, like you just touched on with uh, Hibernian and and the t- deal that's uh, on the table. Let's just change track and talk about hashtag United. How's the season going? What I know Nathan knows about Hashtag United, but uh, for those of us who don't know, can you tell us about it? Yeah, I mean, Hashtag United itself was born from YouTube, right? Um, so Spencer and his brother, Seb, they created a YouTube following around some mates playing football. And then, you know, the interest was so significant that he ended up forming a semi-professional side, um, or sorry, semi, an amateur side first, and then it sort of progressed into a semi-professional side, um, now which is working its way um, through the league. Now, in 2019, um, Spencer put out a tweet saying that he would like to um, get involved in women's football when he was looking to adopt a women's football club. Now, uh, prior to 2019, that's still pretty much the case now, actually, there's multiple women's football clubs that just, you know, they don't know if they're going to survive on one season to the next. It just depends on, you know, grants, sponsorship, etc. Um, and I was working with a club at the time, and we was called CNK Basildon, and our investor literally just walked out. And so we were like, it was player donations, subscriptions, etc., grants from the people behind the scenes just to keep it operating and literally we were sitting down one day it was february we were doing quite well we were top of the league and we were like we just can't do this we're not going to be able to see the season out it's not going to be possible and then um literally honestly sometimes it's luck and timing um whilst we were bemoaning um one of the guys as he's addicted to his phone um just flicking through and he saw this tweet come up from spencer saying look I'm looking to take a, it was just after the World Cup, I'm looking to take a, a ladies football team on. If you're interested, give me a message. Well, we was the highest ranked women's football team in Essex at the time. So we put out our SOS and literally within 48 hours, we, we agreed to become part of Hashtag. And, and and as the story goes, we've um, that he's been brilliant to us. Um, he supports us on and off the field. Um, he's given us the tools to, to function. Um, you know, we don't have, People, there's this misconception that hashtag has, you know, unlimited pot of money, which is not true. Right? We're, we're volunteers, a lot of us, and uh, we just, well, I'm involved with it because football. I didn't even know who hashtag was when I when I agreed to to be part of this. I had to go and ask my children who are hashtag. Um, and then it's like there's a world, right? There's a world of this YouTube celebrity um, stuff that I'm still not uh, attuned with. Um, and but. My students recognise me through hashtag than they do from being a professor at the the university. (laughs) (laughs) And it's it's mad. But yeah, where we are at the moment, so we operate in, uh, we got promoted last year um, to the uh, third tier. We've got the joint lowest resources, but at the moment we're top of the table. Early days, early days, nine games in, 22 in the season. Um, and we'll see. But if we win, if there was a miracle and we did win this, then we would become a professional club. So a professional club under his banner. However, there's one, there's the performance on the pitch that we have to, and then there's the challenges off the pitch in order to yeah. meet the criteria that, that's there. But women's football is steadily growing, steadily growing. 
Um, I think the people at the top end of the game are trying to make it grow quicker than those people underneath it. Um, and that's going to be their downfall. You know, as soon as they want these, they want these one million pound transfer. They want that first woman to be a million pound transfer. With the rest of the football ecosystem can't even afford a hundred pound transfer. Mm. You know, and it's just like stop it because there's only going to be one or two clubs that can afford a million pound transfer. And you're going to do exactly what the Premier League did. You know, these big clubs are just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and no one's going to ever bridge that gap. And you would thought they would have learned from that, but they're not. You know, so. Anyway, that's my grief on women's football, not hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> and just talking about hashtag, hashtag, you say that you're in the third tier now. So yeah. um, I'm meaning two promotions and you'd be in the WSL? Yeah, yeah, basically. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and, which would be, I'm sure, a pipe dream. And uh, that's the beauty of English <laughs> football, that uh, it is, a, albeit remote, possibility. And uh, hashtag United, they've, on the men's side, they've... Uh, a, I believe climbed a few divisions and are they on step six at the moment? Yeah, yeah. So step six from the Premier League. Yep, they are. Yeah. So oh sorry, seven, step seven. So they've got four mm. National League South, because they're the one below the South. So yeah, yeah. But some people it depends how you do the steps, right? So yeah, sure. you look at the men's Premier League, EFL, Championship One, Two, National League, the National League South, and they're the one below mm. the National League South. Yeah. So they're and working their way. It's just amazing to see uh some pro- a project like this. Uh, really grow some legs and some life and really get this sort of backing, something that's never been done before, as far as I'm aware, and a completely different concept for what a football club is. And it'd be great for us lads to go into the case of Hashtag United and yeah. and uh, do a bit more of a deep dive on a later episode. But it's just this sense of not having a particular home ground. Their home ground is the internet. It's a, it's a completely different way of looking at football. Well, exactly. So when you're going back to your point earlier about Australia and Premier League, right, you don't have that affinity to it. Mm. Well, you do with hashtag, right? Because it doesn't matter where you're sitting, whether you're in the jungle in the middle of Asia or whether you're in Australia or whether you're in the the bedroom next to the ground that they use at the moment. But it's that online community, which is, you know, it's phenomenal. They get phenomenal support on their YouTube channels and stuff like that. You know, and we had a few Australians come over this year um, <laughs> that just come over and, and it's like yeah we're, we're mad hashtag fans and we've come over from Australia and you're like that's brilliant excuse and it's like well this is but it's not just Australia they come from we had Japan we had America and it is a different world you can go anywhere at the times um, like pre-season and the people are besotted with Spencer with his um, Spencer's got other entities right so he's got hashtag he's got Spencer FC he's got other little bits and pieces but he's, he is a big celebrity without actually being a big celebrity right so you put the face of TV etc you've got those celebrities but in terms of the YouTube world Spencer is as big as I wouldn't say as KSI and people like that but <laughs> he's definitely well known in that world and the kids know that world right and that's the future the kids know that world there's a reason why you know broadcasting revenues are dropping around the world in football is because more and more people are switching to the the shorter formats the youtubes etc to mm. to engage and you know, a little story here my, my son's 19 years of age and uh, i'm watching liverpool um i think it was liverpool watford um, a couple of years ago right? um and um come watch it with me and he was like um no 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 i'm going upstairs and um anyway liverpool scored and um I hear these footsteps come charging down. That, 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 Liverpool has scored. I'm like, yeah, mate, it's on the TV there. Yeah, I've just seen it. Um, come and watch it with me. <laughs> and he was like, and he was, his head was in his phone. And it was like, no, no, no I'm going back upstairs. And um, like 10 minutes later, he comes running down. Liverpool has scored. I went, 
Yeah, again, I'm still watching it on TV. And it's like <laughs> his world is YouTube. It's their Bible. It's their life. Mm, you know what I mean? It's mm. like normal TV doesn't exist. Sky and stuff like that. It's like, well, that's familiar. It's got to be YouTube. It's got to be this, that, and the other. And, you know, I'd say that the Premier League is embracing that. But I don't think other football leagues have embraced that yet. Mm. And the sooner you switch that smaller um, attention spans, those 15, 20-minute snippets, those goal highlights that, and stuff, that's what they want now. The younger fans want that. And again, using my students as um, as a means of research, you know, I just do some random questions that I ask, you know. And these are the sort of things that we're getting. How many of you support two football clubs? And they go, it's a wave. It's like a Mexican wave. Two football clubs, right? Okay, then it gets more alarming. How many of you support two football clubs in the same league? And then we get 50%. I'm like, what? Wow. What's going on? What's going on there? <laughs> <laughs> like, who do you support? <laughs> Manchester City and Fulham. What the frick? What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and But again, then we've got this other wave for fans where they just want to follow celebrities, athletes. Mm. They yeah, don't players. care what club yeah. they go to. If they go to that club, I'm supporting that club. If I go to that, they don't have that emotional buy-in to the club. They have that emotional buy-in to players. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and this is what football's facing. And so broadcasting itself needs to regenerate and replace that and think one step ahead. Yeah, and, to the, and the to Premier the, League is good at that. Yeah, I was going to say, to that point, you look at what Messi has done to into Miami and, you know, Ronaldo to Al Nasser and, and how this generation will follow players from uh, rather than a team. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. And it is. Um, but, you know, with regards to that one, I'm a little bit cynical with Ronaldo and Messi because it's all mm-hmm. about who can get the biggest financial deal there. Sure. Um, and, yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean, the Messi deal I mean, is just a complete... A completely another level, isn't it, with regards oh. to getting, uh, you know, broadcast, you know, image rights and broad- a share of broadcast rights and subscriptions and a share of, you know, um, the kit yeah, deal and all that kind of stuff. It's just incredible. Say that he's got a share of the kit deal across all the other teams as well. Not Correct. Just yes. Teams. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. Is, yeah, it is. It's insane, isn't it? It's insane, yeah. And yeah. yeah, but there again, you know, go back to the Saudi Pro League, you know, you, you were saying at the beginning that they've got, you know, pretty much now they've got the World Cup. Yesterday, Australia pulled out the running yeah. out. That's so, right. um, 2034 is all but theirs. Um, is Saudi here to stay? Um, yep. I think it's going to be a lot longer now. So, we've got mm-hmm. at least 10 years of it with the World Cup coming, which is going to make it a significant player in the ecosystem, which is enough to destroy some of these European leagues. Mm. Because, you know, we've just seen with the Italian broadcasting deal, the League One broadcasting deal, which have recently been finalized, that they're earning less money now than what they was in you know, 10 years ago. Um, so they're going to find it a real challenge if they don't reinvent themselves. And also, I read an article this morning that you know, as much as Germany has kicked back this, this investment into the league rights, etc., there's now a third attempt for them to take a um, to accept a smaller percentage, so eight nine percent into their league rights for the sake of future broadcasting revenues. Um, and they seem to think this one's going to go across the line because again, they just can't complete with the financial muscle of the Premier League. Yeah. Um, and, a, and another pet hate, I suppose, that you guys, the Super League. Do we need a Super League or not? <laughs> um, and then, you know, um, uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of it because I'm not a fan of it in terms of having close shops, but I'm a fan yeah. of it because if we don't do it, we're going to kill the football ecosystem across Europe. And, of course, they're going to exist and have their leagues, but they're not going to be on the level of the Premier League. And the Premier League's going to become so big that you're going to get bored um, with the Premier League just winning Champions League year after year after year. Well, I'm not saying mm. that Barcelona, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich won't be institutionally big. 
No, that's right. But there's going to be a point where football goes, you know what, you are really too big now and we need to do something. Um, and, and then there's the other issue that governance itself is not fit for purpose, but, you know, that's another podcast. Um, that's... <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which we'll have to get you back on for, Jason, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, I mean, look, going back to MCO and linking this all in, right? So we've got the uh, – if we look at the, the bigger picture, and the bigger picture is at the moment, this World Club World Cup, this is a global super league. This is what Infantino wanted, right? And this is why he's throwing all these eggs in his basket. Because if this becomes a success next year, um, then we can see this coming every two years, not every four years. And then who's to say that it won't become every year, like the Champions League, et cetera, et cetera. They'll find a way to make it work, especially with money talks. But if we link it to MCOs, you could have Manchester City have four teams in wow. this Club World Cup at the moment. Mm. Okay, they could have them. Australia, their team in Australia, their team in India, um, their team in um, Europe, etc., and their team in America. So you could, or South America as well. So you could relatively see them with four or five teams in this competition by the time it actually launches its inaugural in 2025. And then we've got a whole different world, right? Because he ain't going to care. He ain't going to care which team wins, right? He's just going to sit back and lap it up because he's got all the money. Um, and this is the other thing, right? Does multi-club ownership affect integrity and competition on the pitch? And I will say no, it won't. Mm. And I will say no, it won't. Because I've been involved in football games myself, right? And if there's a club that's... There's a term that we use here, Bertie Big Bollocks, you know. If there's a club <laughs> that received a Bertie Big Bollocks, it's amazing what that does to one's motivation on the opposite side, right? Yeah. And there's always going to be that... You cannot change that mindset of a football no. player they are going to want to try their Great. best so the, yeah. the owners that get that right the owners that just stay away right. from that i'm not influencing the pitch these are yep. my team but you guys just go out there and smash it and the best team wins correct correct and and that's where i fundamentally don't have a problem per se with multi-club ownership because i look at nottingham forest and olympiacos right and i would turn yeah. around and say okay if they if those two teams happen to play against each other in a Europa League, they are absolutely going to take it to one another, not absolutely. and not hold back. So you know, and that's a, and that's an interesting one, right? Because he owned it first, right? And <laughs> that's right. Started. That's right. And, and and that character behind it is um is very colourful. Yeah, is very colourful. Um, and again, very colourful. <laughs> very <laughs> colour. Very colourful and very influential. Yeah, very influential. And again, yes. how does one own a football club and be president of the league and vice president of the Super League? I just don't get it. That's you know, yeah, that's a Greek thing. <laughs> Being a yeah. Greek background, I can tell you all about it, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> and it is great, and I love it. I love it. I love listening to those stories, right? But, it, I mean, again, it's one of the beauties of Multicab. But, you know, what he's doing for Nottingham Forest, the fans won't have a bad word said about him. Like, no, that's right. He's taking him back to the promised land. And yeah, correct. It's a typical case of we don't care and, what happens in Greece. We and don't he, care and, what happens in Nottingham. And he's mad enough to to actually invest money into it or pour money into it. And, you know, the fact that he's actually held on to Cooper, though, just going on a football issue, the fact that he's held on to Cooper has impressed me because that is such an anti-Greek or anti-Olympiakos move because he's not normally, you know, yeah. you, normally the barometer is, you know, non-European qualification or finished second and you get the sack, right? Yeah, because yeah. they're so used to winning the, uh, the league. So. And that was the thing last year that mm. I think, Last season was the first time that he hadn't sacked the manager at Forest since he's taken Correct. over. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right, okay. I didn't know that's that, but that's a, that's an interesting one. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, there was lots of cases, weren't there? Clubs did panic. Um, Lampard went back to Chelsea and then yeah. um, 
I love this stat. What it was, um, someone pulled out a stat of the weekend that the the Brentford manager um, <laughs> has won more games at Stamford Bridge than Frank Lampard. That's right. <laughs> In the second run, yeah, <laughs> that's absolutely fantastic. But um, uh, listen, look, one of the, the the challenges that could come of multi-club ownership mm. is what the Saudis have done in their own pro league, right? So they've ordered the PIF fund to buy the top four clubs, right? Mm-hmm. So one rule that's not closed yet is the movement of players between MCOs, right? So there is this free transition. If you want to loan a player to your club or agree a minimal transfer fee, etc., that can be done. And if you look at the players involved in those four Saudi pro clubs, you could have a super team coming over to Newcastle in January. Now, I'm not saying it's going to happen because... But that that was also the rumour with uh, Sandra Tonali being out for such a long time now, but uh, uh, the Portuguese midfielder from who used to be a Wolves... Neves. Uh, Neves. Ruben Neves. Neves, yeah. Ruben Neves, yeah. That was the rumour that uh, <laughs> he may find, himself in, uh, may find himself in Newcastle before too long. Yeah, and I think that this sort of things do happen, right? Because if you look at Girona in um, mm. Spain, now, no mm. one's bemoaning them being top of the league. They just like the fact that somebody else is challenging the norm. I get mm. that. We haven't seen that this century, right? No one's going to microanalyse that. But when you do microanalyse it, you'll see that it's Pep Guardiola's brother that has a controlling stake in the club. And the reason that CFG got into that club in the first place, because when Pep signed for uh, Manchester City, it was a condition that CFG bought Girona in partnership with his brother. Now, that partnership has developed in the fact that they've got loads of movement of players. And if you analyse CFG's um, movement of players between their portfolio clubs, no, there's been no one club that's received more players from Manchester City from the junior players than Girona. So there's another there side of it that yeah. the influence yeah. there is starting to have an impact. But no one will care because they just want to disturb the balance, right? Because it'd be just a great story for Spanish football if there's another team wins that league would be the first time this century so no one's going to care but in a couple of years time you bet you you know the the, the Barcelona president the um, oh, Madrid yeah. president they will be kicking up a stink right they'll kick oh, up a sure. stink because they won't they won't like it um, but they're okay taking money from the government but they won't like it because City are putting their players in but that's another but it's um yeah, it, it is interesting. It is interesting. But again, I don't think Newcastle will do it on quantity. Um, you know, you won't see Conte, Neymar, Mane, Benzema, all that, which they could do, come over to Newcastle in January. <laughs> I know as a Newcastle fan, you're bloody hoping they do. <laughs> no, no, actually. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not Neymar, you know, Benzema. Yeah, I'll take Benzema yeah, for sure. Take him. And Kante. Oh, no. Come on, yeah. Uh, can't, can't give us Kante and Benzema and I'll be happy, don't worry. Could have could have as well. Yeah, I mean, maybe, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, no. It's like Mara's. Yeah, yeah, yeah Mara's yeah, as well. Would, mm, I would. And when you look at it, we've actually done a, like a squad analysis on it. It's incredible, the 11 yeah. that you could have. It's like, who out of Newcastle would you keep? <laughs> That's the challenge. Yeah, yeah. But I don't the think keep... they'd be silly enough to do that. No, nah, I don't think they'd no, be silly enough to do that. No. Uh, oh, they'd have to qualify for the Champions League uh, knockout phase for that to happen, I think, or something like that to happen anyway. anyway. Yeah, well, again, it's also in Champions League places, right? Because yeah, it is very competitive this year. And with Liverpool yes. and, and Spurs having a bit of resurgence and Newcastle's yeah. Yeah. places under threat. Yeah. Very true. Very true. Jason, we want to thank you for your time. You've been most generous and we'd love to have you on again on the back peg. And um, where can people follow you? Mate, I just I'm on, I'm only on LinkedIn. I'm a, I'm a boring. Yes, guy, you right? are indeed. Uh, yeah, You're yeah, on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's all I, I am. Jason, I mean, I have got, so follow Jason yeah. Stevens on LinkedIn. It's <laughs> amazing, amazing content. Actually, I have to say. 
Yeah, I mean, like I said, I'm just into this at the moment and it's growing, growing, and I'm just doing a series at the moment where I'm linking all the connections between Premier League which, clubs. And, which is fascinating. Yeah, absolutely all, fascinating. 18 out of the 20 clubs are linked, you know what I mean? So it's it's incredible. It's incredible. But you'll see that over the course of the next few weeks. Yeah. But guys, look, 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 I really appreciate the opportunity. Nice to meet you. And um, like I said, I hope we can talk again soon. No, indeed. Look forward to it. No. Thanks, Jason. Take care, gents. All right. 